Morning, you step out of bed and into the whitewater raft that is your day. Paddle your guts out and try to miss that big rock. Ouch, never mind. But the river never stops. So wipe off the blood, paddle over to that flat spot on the bank, and we'll get some perspective together. The story's not about you, but if you can learn to see the whole river from Eden to the New Jerusalem, if you can learn to cry at the cross and sing at the empty tomb and trust God through the time in between, you won't just survive. You'll be ready to leave this world a little brighter than you found it. And then we'll get you back on the water. Okay, well, welcome to episode two of Eden to the City of God. I am your host, uh, co-host, uh, Ryan Bramlett. I'm here with Joe Anderson, president, CEO of uh, Headwaters <laughs> Christian Resources. And just to get you up to speed here, we're at episode two. We're going through the uh, Victorious Bible Curriculum piece by piece, lesson by lesson. Uh, right now we're in lesson 1.3 uh, after our last episode in 1.1 and 1.2. But we're going to wrap up a little bit with, uh, we're going to dip back into lesson 1.2 and then we're going to continue on with 1.3. So Joe, do you want to get us uh, started off here? Yeah. So in, in lesson 1.2, uh, we go through the days four, five, and six of creation. And we talked a little bit about, about this in lesson uh, 1.1 last time we recorded the podcast with uh, Mr. Tim Nichols. And we talked about how God created seed bearing plants and fruit bearing trees. And it, what, those are not exhaustive categories. You can't fit all plants into those categories. And it's interesting that they're categorized that way because those are not what we would call scientific categories in any way at all. And then when it comes to day four, where God creates sun, moon, and stars, those again, aren't scientific categories and God defines them and as he's creating them, they're called lights and they're, so they're defined in relation to their utility to man. They provide light to the earth. So you get up in the morning because the sun comes up and you can see the world because God created the sun to be a light. The sun is not just a coincidentally, a star that happens to be in our solar system. It's a light that was given to us by God. So the, the purpose of creation is kind of built into the way God speaks about it as he's creating it, or the author of Genesis one speaks about it as he's creating. These were created for the purpose of mankind. And we have something similar with the fish of the sea and great sea creatures. They're called in Genesis chapter one and, and then the birds of the air. And then later on, on day six, God creates the animals. And the animals have a sim similar category thing going on where, again, they're not scientific categories. It didn't say, and God created mammals and reptiles and uh, it's God created the livestock, God created the beasts of the field. God, uh, this is the way some translations talk about it. God created the wild animals and God created the creeping things. We have three categories there, the wild animals, the livestock and the creeping things and creeping things includes presumably not just mammals, um, but bugs and lizards. So the category of creeping things crosses all the scientific categories and you have 
um, just things that run around by your feet. I got interested this morning and, and Googled what's the smallest mammal. And it's, uh, there's a shrew that's like weighs less than so many grams, two grams or 10 grams or something weighs about the, about the same amount as a dime. And it's tinier than a lot of bugs. And then there's a bat, um, somewhere in Thailand or something. And it's about the size of a bumblebee. And so you have these mammals that are just as small as bugs, but they're all kind of lumped in this one category of creeping things. And it's just about kind of the, the category that is defined by its relationship to man. These are the things that run around by our feet. Anyway, I want to, I want to just, just make note of those categories because they don't fit with what we've kind of determined and the categories in science. Yeah. And this actually relates to something that we were talking about in the last episode where we talked about how the Bible is written at a level that children can understand and that we are the children. It wouldn't have made sense for the Bible to have, have these, the taxonomy laid down and say, this is the, this is the kingdom, the phylum, the order, the way that these are, these animals, these creatures are categorized. It's done at a level that we can understand. Like these are the creeping things. These are the animals that can help you serve you. And these are the animals that are going to be sacrificed or the way that that's divided is, is done at a, at a level that, that anyone can understand reading this. And they're, so they're put, it's put in terms we can understand. And it's also set up in such a way that God actually created these animals for our purpose. A scientist, especially a naturalistic kind of scientist is approaching this as like, oh, these are the, these are the creatures that evolved. Let's categorize them by, by their, you know, whether they have lungs or not, or how, how many, you know, do they have hooves or do they, you know, they have split hooves. Do they have toes? What, you know, let's, let's, let's like look at them and break them up into little categories, but God made them for a purpose for man. And so the purposes cross the scientific categories. The reason I think this is so significant is when it comes to worldview teaching, um, worldview has, you know, kind of grew into this big deal. If you want to know how to be a Christian in the world, you got to learn worldview. The problem with it is that worldview has been articulated so many times in terms of categories that science gave us. So it's often presented as here's how we respond to the sociologist or the philosopher or the naturalist, the, uh, the biologist, here's how we respond to them. And we kind of take their categories as fact. And we view the world in a Christian way, but through the lenses that are provided to us by scientists. And what we want to do with our curriculum is provide a, use the Bible as a lens to see the world. And so the categories that we want to develop are worldview categories for the, for looking at the world. So as we go on in our curriculum, we ultimately write a third year called the path of the wise. We have the old Testament, the new Testament and the path of the wise. The path of the wise is our attempt to kind of distill the old and new Testament into its native categories and give, give our kids a lens through which they can see the world. that's natively biblical in the way that science is not natively biblical or in the way that we respond to the way science has categorized these, these creatures as what they are, the fact of what they are. And that has nothing whatsoever to do with what their purpose might be. And that's a word that I keep coming back to. And what you're saying is the word purpose. If we think of an, any animal as having been created for a purpose, then yes, it wouldn't make sense to categorize the animals based on what they are, what their traits are, whether they have for 
fur or lungs or any of that. It would be, you, you would have to look at animals and all of creation, not just animals, but plants and everything else in a completely different light relating to its purpose. But if you don't necessarily believe that anything was created with any purpose, then all you can do is simply respond to what is or what has evolved in your worldview. And so you're just, all of the work that you do in, in life is just responding to the fact of what the animal is mm-hmm. and not what its purpose is. So that's a very interesting distinction. And I think this is, this is the wonderful joy of being a biblical Christian is we don't live in a world where we're just looking out and going, you know, wow, these are the things that have just kind of happened to be here and we get to look at them and maybe enjoy them. We're looking at this going, wow, God made this for us and it's beautiful and it's useful and it's good truth, goodness, and beauty. It's, it's all right here in front of us. And we can, we can enjoy it in a much deeper way, knowing that it was, it was created by God for, for us and for him to enjoy along with us. Even today in 2017, there are still species of animals that are being discovered, which is incredible to think that in all of the man's history, if we think of, of creation as being created by God to be at our disposal or to subdue or, or compliment us in some way, to think that there are still animals being discovered today that we did not know of before, but still have some purpose relating to us. That is pretty astonishing. Or to think that up until very recently, there were parts of the earth, the land masses that had not been explored or that man had not even set foot on. Right. It, that is pretty mind blowing as, as well. To think that there's still parts of God's yeah. creation that have not even been discovered by man. And here we are thousands and thousands of years into this. That's pretty interesting too. Is, yeah. So in Lesson 1.3, we get to the creation of man. And and Joe, I want you to just start off by talking a little bit about why was man created on the sixth day and not earlier? Uh, what What's the significance of God creating man on this day, particularly just before the seventh day when he rests? Yeah, I got, I have two comments on that. First of all, God created man on the sixth day because he created a home for mankind to live in. And he didn't, I think he didn't want to introduce man into, into his creation until kind of the home had been created. Um, and I think I look at this as kind of a caring, an aspect of God as a caring father. He created a beautiful world for man to live in. And then he created the garden, which it doesn't talk about here in this lesson, but in, in following lessons, we'll see the garden. And that's where Adam and Eve were placed and put, and they were given a, a task there. They were created to rule over the earth that God had created. So I think it would, it would seem a little odd for God to introduce man earlier on in the creation and say, now you guys wait there. I'm going to make this world for you. You know, so we have kind of a per the purpose of creation is built right into the order of how God built it. God made a home. He gave, he made a job for man and then he created man. And he put him directly into that task. And that goes back to that purpose thing is the purpose was built before he put man into it. And then regarding the, the, the seventh day, um, God created man on the sixth day. And, and then he said, we're supposed to imitate that pattern. Six days, God worked. And then, um, on the seventh day, God rested. But when God created man, he created him on the sixth day. So man's first full day in creation was the Sabbath day. So man started from rest and then worked 
from that rest. And I think this is the proper way to look at sat the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not, is not, Oh man, I'm finally exhausted after this hard week of work. So I'm going to just lay back and rest. No, we want to be active on the Sabbath in the sense that we're looking at it as our starting point. So we're not just resting from our exhaustion. We're resting to work, not working in order to finally get to that last day and rest. And do you think after man was created, do you think God considered this the capstone of all creation? I mean, obviously in terms of scale, man is nothing compared to the the beauty or the vastness of an ocean or of a mountain range or uh, the sun or the stars or the gal. I mean, you think of what God created, it's it's so vast and so staggeringly uh, beautiful in the eyes of man. But the fact that man is created on the sixth day, is this then a sort of a capstone of his creation or how do you how do you view that? Yeah. In fact, I think I would think specifically of a woman as being the capstone because God didn't pronounce creation very good until he had created the woman. On as a married man, it behooves day. you to say that. It that does. Yeah. <laughs> it works out well that way. Um, but yeah. And I think of Psalm eight where the psalmist reflects on God creating man and just marvels at how God has created man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And even out of the mouth of babes comes wisdom and glory. So we're going to introduce our special guest that we have uh, with us this week. His name is Jim Hunt. He is a middle school teacher at Cherry Hills Christian Middle School in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Uh, Jim, why don't you say a little bit about... uh, little bit about what you do and, and your relationship to this curriculum that you've been teaching for a number of years now. Okay. First of all, thank you, Joe and Ryan for having me today. This is a privilege and, and I appreciate it. Um, so what I do, I Cherry Hills, I work in the middle school. You said that, but, um, I started in the elementary, so I've been through the school and we've had many, many different Bible curriculums. Um, and I've taught a lot of different things. So how this whole curriculum came about was my principal came at the end of the year meeting and said, oh, by the way, you are not going to teach on Jesus anymore. The sixth grade, which I was teaching at that time and still am, uh, he said, the sixth grade is now going to do the Old Testament. So, you know, be ready in the fall. And have a good summer. And uh, I completely freaked out. I'm like, what? I've been teaching Jesus for five years. And just recently we had compartmentalized Bible. So it used to be that every teacher taught Bible first period of of the day. But we picked people who wanted to teach Bible. Now I had this huge responsibility of teaching four classes of sixth grade Bible Plus a brand new curriculum, which I had no clue what I was going to do. So he didn't, he, he didn't give you any, any curriculum, right? Like he just said, you're going to teach Old Testament, figure it out. Yeah. He, he just said, you know, you got to teach Old Testament. Then seventh will do New Testament. Eighth will be a combo. Good luck. He gave me nothing and I had nothing. And I, like I said, I had been through so many curriculums that I didn't even know where to start. I knew I knew some that I didn't even want to touch because um, the kids were bored with it. So I was freaking out. I had gone to several, you know, websites, Christian bookstores looking for an Old Testament 
curriculum for this age level. Couldn't find it. So I just happened to be at a gathering with uh, Joe and I was bringing up my dilemma with Joe. And I said, can you believe my principal just gave me this whole new curriculum that I have to do next year? I'm thinking the Old Testament, there's no way I can teach that. I I need help. And so I was telling Joe this and he just goes, "Uh, I can help you. I've taught Old Testament many times to my youth groups and I can write you a curriculum. So I'm like, really? You can do this and you don't have it started or done? And I'm thinking, I've got like a month maybe a month and a half before I have to start teaching Old Testament and you haven't even started it, this isn't going to happen. But Joe worked out a plan. He uh, he convinced me that he could do it. Well, and I remember this because uh, I told Tim, my co-author on the curriculum that you guys met last week, I told Tim, I said, hey, I might have this opportunity that we can actually put some of this stuff that we've been working on with the Old Testament into a curriculum form. And Tim was like, yeah, sure. He had no idea what we were getting. Neither of us had any idea what we were getting into. And so Jim asked us for some samples that he could show the principal and see if the principal would kind of approve this as the curriculum they could use. And so we sat down and we spun out the lessons 1.1 and 1.3. And it was, this is stuff we had taught so many times. We knew it inside and out. And so we wrote the lessons, the sample lessons in like 10 minutes and, and we wrote them together. We got them done. We're like, this is going to be easy. 10 minutes per lesson. We're going to blow through this. And, uh, and so we wrote these lessons. We're really happy with them, sent them off to, to Jim and Jim showed them to tell us how it went after that. Well, um, immediately after the first one I received, I read through it and I just said, wow, this is good stuff because I'm learning new things. It's not just written for kids. It's it's hitting me and I'm I'm getting so much out of this. And so I went to my principal and just said, you got to read this. And he went through it and he said, let's do it. I mean, it didn't take any time at all. And so I told Joe, uh, let's get it going. And he was emailing me lessons. Um, Sometimes I'd have to call him and say, Joe, I'm on my last lesson that you wrote. I need more. And so Joe would would go, okay, I'm on it. I'll get those to you by tomorrow night and you can teach it the next day. (laughs) So I made just a, a three ring notebook started out with his first lesson and by the end of the year it was full like three inches thick of lessons that he had emailed me and I had copied off so that's how it all kind of started with typos and everything and now of course we have the he shall crush his head curriculum has has been well established and how uh, how many years have you been teaching this now I think this I just finished my fourth year teaching it uh, maybe five because we yeah but anyway yeah it's gone so fast because it's a great curriculum I love it what what is it that you feel your your students really respond to in the I mean obviously you've touched on a little bit about how it is to teach it but how do your students respond to it and and how do you feel that it's it's the way that the curriculum is written is is helping them as opposed to it being a little bit more pedantic and dry 
Well, you know, when kids think of the Old Testament, they just they open it and just go, oh, my gosh, there's names, there's places, there's, you know, they have no clue. Most of these kids are churched and they've been in Bible studies and they've been in Sunday school for a long time, but they have not really delved into the Old Testament. And so um, what Joe has done, he's made it so practical. You know, you take a, a section of scripture and he pulls out these nuggets of of wisdom that the kids latch onto and they'll just go, wow, I never knew that. And so um, as I'm learning, the kids are learning with me. And so it's a very profound curriculum. It's not like, uh, you know, you look up these verses and fill in blanks. It's like, we're going to learn together. We are going to um, see how the Old Testament applies to our lives today. The first thing I do every year now is I read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1. And God created the heavens and earth by his word. And the spirit hovers over the earth, over the waters of the earth, of the deep. And so right there, this blew me away the first time I read it. But there's a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, because, and, and then the kids go, well, he said the word, he didn't say Jesus. So then I go to John chapter one and I go, okay, now listen to this. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was there in the beginning with God and all things were created through him and without him, not anything made was made. And so right there, they're defining Jesus as the word. And so it connects perfectly with the first few verses of Genesis chapter one. I mean, it even starts out the same way in the beginning, you know, the word was there. And so the kids right away, they, they have relevance to the old Testament um, because Jesus is mentioned in the first few verses. And it's right there. They can make a connection. Oh, this is, this is important stuff because it, connects to the Old Testament. And so I just, I tell the kids that, you know, the New and Old Testament fit like a glove together and that we're going to learn through the year how that, how that all happens. So Jim, when we talk about students trying to get into the Old Testament and how intimidating it can be with all of the place names and the names of the people and, and the complicated uh, histories that we see in early on in the Old Testament. I can see how that would be a challenge to teach that. But when we talk about uh, the first day in the history of the universe, or when you're going through the six days of, of creation, when it comes to that place where we're at now in the curriculum where man is created, how do you engage them in the story of, of man's creation? And how do you use the curriculum to put the creation of man in that, uh, in the context, the greater context of creation? Well, I do a lot of different things. One thing I like to do is I like to get the kids talking in little groups and we are, we are an iPad driven school. So I get the kids and I say, okay, I want you guys to make a video in your little group and tell me why did God create man? Why did he do it? And so it's a good question because they, you know, that that's good for us. Why did God create man? Um, and so the kids get go off and they make little videos 
And then we play them up on, we have a Promethean board, which is uh, a technology driven board that I can reflect their videos up on the board. Um, and so we watch them and, and the answers that they come up with are, are great. Um, it really stimulates them to think because that's what I want them to do. I want them to come up with answers. I want them to think through this stuff and not me just telling them, you know, why God did this. Now, there does come a point where I might direct them, you know, to to the answers, but I like them to come up with the answers. And you know what? They usually get it. So that's where I start. What are some of the answers before you delve into the text in Genesis uh, chapter one? What are some of the the more interesting answers that you get in, re- in response to why did God create man? That's an interesting question. I've heard like, you know, God wanted people on the earth. He wanted uh, he wanted someone like him, not just animals or birds. He wanted someone like God, um, because they've heard that we are created in his image. So I get a lot of those answers. I get, um, some of the right answers that God wanted to have a relationship with, with man. He went, he was, God was, well, some kids say God is lonely. I've heard that a few times. Um, and these are from church, as you said, these are churched kids. Right. So it's kind of interesting to think about, um, when, when I reflect upon my childhood, I didn't necessarily assume that God created man. So I, I never stopped to think, why did God create man? I may have stopped to think, did God create man? And if he did, why would he have done that? Uh, Joe, of course, you grew up in a, a you come from a very churched background. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were a child, uh, what do you remember about this question or did you ever stop to reflect upon this question? Why did God create man? Well, I think that we got very little of Genesis chapter one in the churches that I grew up. And I think this was pretty common uh, during that kind of period of time in the eighties and nineties. And even still today is we're, we're mostly focused in our churches on the new Testament. And so any, any reflection on why man was created was kind of done in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ and the new birth and what the new birth is all about. And so we would get things like, you know, you were created to be like your students, Jim, you were created to be in relationship with God, which is absolutely true and central to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But without any of the, the kind of image of God and Trinitarian stuff that goes along with that, um, that, that might've enriched that kind of experience of that knowledge. Um, so we didn't go into Genesis when we were answering the question, why did God create us? We didn't go back to Genesis chapter one, as far as I remembered, but we just kind of jumped in with a relationship with Christ. One of the things that you talk about in the curriculum that I really want to get into is the, the Trinitarian aspects of, of this passage. Uh, where in the, in this part of Genesis, where do you see the Trinity reflected in the text? And can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the key, the key verses we're going into here, are Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And when I teach this to kids, what I'll do is on a whiteboard, cause I don't have a Promethean board. Sorry. <laughs> is that right? Promethean? Promethean? Yeah. It's a, it's really like a smart board. Okay. I'll, I'll take a whiteboard and I'll write out the words of Genesis 
one, 26 and 27. And then I will go through it and I'll have the kids. I'll stop and I'll say, tell me if this noun is singular or plural. Okay. So Genesis one twenty six. So you have God, you have, you have, um, and the observation I want to draw out of the kids is you have God showing up both as singular and plural. Um, God said, let us. So he speaks of himself in the plural. So you have, and then you have man spoken of in both singular and plural. Let us make man singular in our image, in the image of God. He created them plural. So God is creating God, the singular and plural God is creating singular and plural man. And so the Trinitarian image is meant to be reflected in the creation of man and specifically in the creation of mankind as male and female. So that's the, the male and female aspect is a reflection of God's Trinitarian nature. That's what I want to get the kids into. And then ultimately, I'll, and I, I usually poach on this part, I push them all the way through the Bible and that the church is the bride of Christ. And so the male and female aspect is reflecting Christ, the ultimate man and church, the ultimate female being brought into union. Um, and just marriage is an, is an image of that union. And Paul, of course, spells all that out in Ephesians chapter five. I had one thought, um, about this passage. One thing that really stuck out to me and that always makes an impact on the kids is, um, the first thing that God said to Adam and Eve, you, if I throw that question, like that's a question I ask the kids while we're going through this. And what was the first thing he said to Adam and Eve? And, and they all say, uh, you know, something negative. Don't eat um, the fruit. Don't eat the fruit. <laughs> right. Don't eat the fruit. Don't, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. Um, but actually God is, is giving them a blessing. Um, to be fruitful and multiply the earth. And, and that shocks the kids because number one, they're, they're like, when they think of marriage or just and having kids or that freaks them out right there. But they, they don't realize that that God's first thing is a blessing to them. And so that's, that always makes an impact. Man. And this is, this is something I hammer on constantly. And Ryan will tell you this whenever I, (laughs) whenever I start talking about our Christian duty, our Christian duty to our neighbors is to, to take a stance of blessing and to literally bless them with our words. This is one of the first places I'm, I go when I try to make that case is because we're so skewed in our Christian thinking because of this. And this fact exposes it so clearly. Whenever you ask kids, what's the first thing God said, almost without fail and, and adults too, will answer it this way. Almost without fail. They will say the first thing God said to Adam and Eve is don't eat from that tree. They automatic. And and that that the underlying reality that that shows is that we have trained our children to believe that God is a God of rules first and foremost. Sure. We also believe that he sent his son to die for us and has, you know, pronounced us his children forever. But before we get there, God, God started by giving us rules and telling us not to break them. That's, that's kind of our innate Christian understanding in our culture nowadays. God, God is first and foremost, a God, a rule making God, and we should just comply with his rules. That's the starting point. 
And it's just not true. The first thing God did, and it says, and God blessed them. And now, of course, the blessing isn't isn't what we expect is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We don't we don't think of that as a blessing. We think of that as like a task. Um, but it is, it's both a task and a blessing. And we were created to work, we were created to be fruitful. And it's a it's it's an absolutely beautiful blessing. We were created to be like God, to make things, to be God created um in the well in the creeds in the in the apostles creed and and even more clearly in the nicene creed the father the son proceeds from the father and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son the trinity the the image of the trinity is an image of fruitfulness even even the terms that we use for god maybe this gets to why God is spoken of in the Bible in the way he is as a father is because of the fruitfulness aspect of a father produces a son. And then from the father and the son come the Holy spirit. And then God creates Adam and Eve and he blesses them with a, he blesses them with a command and the command is to be like him, to be fruitful, to have fruit proceed from them, both fruit in terms of cultivating and tending to the world and making the world a fruitful place and of being fruitful and having, having children and populating the earth. And then sometimes kids will say, well, well, Mr. Hunt, isn't our, isn't it our world getting too crowded now and all the pollution and all the, uh, you know, we're harming our, uh, our forests and, you know, animals are dying and the, the, all that stuff. And my comeback is that God gave a command, be fruitful and multiply the earth. And so we can trust him that if he gave that command that we're doing, I mean, we, we need to do the right things and we don't want to pollute, but, but the world, um, God is saying, you know, multiply, be fruitful, fill it. And then we trust him for what's coming in the future. So God doesn't ask us to abdicate our responsibility to the planet. He doesn't say to be fruitful and multiply and use all available resources and drain the earth and scourge the earth. And he asks us to subdue the earth, but he doesn't ask us to be irresponsible. So it's. I guess the distinction I'm saying is that he does ask us to be fruitful and multiply, but I don't see any inherent danger in that, in that blessing. Yeah. And I think the, the kind of environmentalist approach to this is man is just another animal and we need to somehow kind of just, just pull back from actually engaging with the world and, and, you know, stop using fossil fuels and any, any variety of things that might cause harm to the environment is, is a simplistic approach to our obligation to creation. Our obligation to creation under that kind of approach is just kind of leave it alone. The command that God gives us is not a leave it alone command, but it's also not a, you know, tear the earth apart and just, you know, um, get everything you can out of it for yourself. We're we're created to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we have to be wise with the earth to unto that purpose. So there's, there, there comes that purpose idea again, is we have, we have an obligation to the world in, in, in being consistent with the purpose that God created us for being here. And that, that ultimately works its way out into a different boots on the ground approach to how we treat the earth. And it requires a lot, a lot more wisdom um, to how can we make the, the earth the most productive we can possibly make it. 
So Joe, speak to the second half of this blessing where God asks us to subdue creation. How do you see in a larger sense how man is called on to subdue the earth? The, the land and the animals are kind of the main things. It, God doesn't say that we're supposed to rule over the um, the stars of the sky. And, um, you know, we haven't figured out a way to do that, even if we're supposed to yet. He doesn't um, prohibit us from exploring. He does them. not prohibit us from exploring. Um, but the, the ruling over the earth idea here is not, it's not a dominance kind of thing. Like you might see in the animal kingdom, chimpanzees ruling over other chimpanzees. And if they don't like the way the dominance hierarchy chimpanzee, if they don't like the way he's ruling, then all the, the other males will get together and kind of tear him to shreds and, and replace him with whoever they think is more dominant. And so we're not, but we're not called to that kind of thing. We're called to rule in the same way that God rules over the earth. So with a, with a loving touch with care for the world that God has given to us, just like God is our ruler um, with gentleness and kindness. So we want to dis- distinguish between um, ruling with dominance and ruling like God rules. So subduing the earth, I think means making it as useful for mankind with an eye towards the future. We think of ruling as such an act of violence almost and we don't think of, of stewardship of resources to be um, an act of subduing or an act of ruling. But to your definition, then absolutely taking stewardship over our the earth that we see around us is every bit a way of ruling in your interpretation here as uh, one tribe uh, going to war with another tribe and defeating them. And that I, I do think you're correct in that this is often interpreted so narrowly to be this almost like a machismo uh, subduing the earth and and uh, yoking the oxen and and making everything fall under our personal dominance when in fact it's more of of man engaging his brain and not just his brawn to uh, to make things uh, from the raw materials that God has provided and and one thing you know you had mentioned that there's no animal that's over another animal when God created them. And I, I love the pictures that are in this curriculum. Uh, who's the, who is the artist again? This was uh, Gustave Doré. Okay. A, a, um, a French artist from the, uh, the 19th century that did a whole series of Bible illustrations. And then we had a local artist here, Will Britton, colorize all of those original black and white woodcuts. Um, to kind of bring the, hopefully bring some imagery to help bring the story to life. And they are beautiful. And um, I love the picture when God was finished creating, he's got a picture of all the animals. He's got lions and, and he's got um, horses and he's got elephants. He's got all these animals, sheep, um, and they're all laying together in this field. Um, It's a beautiful picture. But it just shows that when God first created the earth, they they were all, there was no superiority between the animals. They were all just, they lived in harmony. Um, And that's what Jesus says when he comes back, the lion and the lamb will, will be together and they, they will get along. And, and so I love the, I love the pictures. My kids, um, often respond to me as we're going through the the curriculum, just how incredible the pictures are. They just love them. So that's a great, another great aspect to this. 
curriculum. And this is so antithetical to the scientific worldview that would say that the, we were talking before about how there's, there's no mention of purpose in the world of science, that these animals, it wouldn't make any sense whatsoever for them to live in peace with each other. Because in the scientific worldview, the lion has a purpose, not God's purpose for the lion for man as it relates to man, but the lion is serving a, a predatory purpose in the ecosystem. And that these animals, because each animal fulfilling a, a role as predator or prey, that is its purpose. And so the, the biblical view of animals living together in peace, not only could never happen, but may, it makes absolutely no sense to the secular, the scientific worldview. It, it, it's a, it's a pointless thing. Right. And, and from a, a secular scientist, they're looking at creation as it is now, um, without having, we, we come to this, we come, we know that we're coming in the middle of the story and the fall happened and that kind of changed everything we're looking at. So a scientist, a naturalist that goes to look at the world is kind of looking at it and going, this is just the way it is, the way it always has been, the way it always will be. But we're looking at this going, no, there's a, there's a direction here and there's a story behind it. And before the fall happened in Eden, there was this, this perfect peace and beauty and Adam could be brought the animals and he named the animals and, and, and then after at the city of God, the animals will again be restored to their identic identities as peaceful creatures. And, um, I don't know what all, what all that means exactly how it will look. Uh, but there is a, there's kind of a, we have the bookends here, Eden to the city of God and the, the, the kind of reunification of the world under that single purpose in, in the new Jerusalem. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, this episode. And I want to give a special thanks to our guest, uh, Jim Hunt. Thank you so much for, for coming out and helping us with this. And thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor to be here today. And I just want to throw this out. I'm so thankful for Jim. This curriculum would have never happened if Jim had not said, Hey, what am I going to do next year? And now Jim knows the curriculum better than, better than I do. <laughs> He's been using it a lot longer. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great curriculum. I recommend it to anybody who would, who needs to, you know, uh, teach the Bible and in, in a school or to a youth group. I mean, it's amazing. So thank you so much for putting this together. Please join us on the next episode of Eden to the City of God. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Jim. We'll dig in deeper next time. Thank you for listening. Please join us at headwatersresources.org to download our podcast and check out our entire line of books for you and your family. Our podcast was created and produced by Joe Anderson and Ryan Bramley. Our theme music was written by Pacifica. Our narrator is Tim Nichols. In our next episode, we take one more step through the Bible. For Ryan and Joe, this is your official announcer, McKenna Dunch, saying goodbye for now, and may the peace of the Lord be with you.